because of COVID, because of remote working, because of the civil rights movement. There has been so many things that have happened in such a short period of time that people are not putting up with BS at work anymore. I'm Dan Smolin, and this is the Dan Smolin Podcast. We help people to navigate the future of work, to work that is profound, protects the planet, empowers people in communities, and is fun to do, meaningful work. The stories that our guests tell and the insights that they provide will inspire you to connect with work and experiences that stoke your passions and make the world a better place. For the future of work, is meaningful work. As companies discover how to introduce their people to workplaces, they also reckon with social responsibility. It is one thing for a company to stand for positive social change. It is quite another to walk the talk. 2020 was a year of reckoning, and in 2021, Business leaders are re-engaging with a professional workforce rattled by 14 months of remote work isolation. But C-suites must also tackle head-on the institutionalized incivility at the workplace that had often rendered the work that people do meaningless. Our guest this week is a self-described chief civility officer. Sajel Thacker understands the sting of incivility like few other people. During her teenage years in the Chicago suburbs, she suffered near-daily racial prejudice and bullying. As an adult, Sajel became a labor attorney, oftentimes representing managers accused of workplace incivility and discrimination. And it was that professional experience that inspired her to pivot her career to training and empowerment. Now through her company called Train Extra, Sajel helps people learn and apply civility in the workplace. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, including how Sajel's early life and work experiences shaped her civility practice, an important discussion on microaggression, and how managers must use their time and resources intentionally to foster a civil workplace. As Sajel says, to walk the talk. I spoke with Sajel Thacker in April 2021 over Zoom. Sajel Thacker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. And I'm excited to have you here, my friend. You are the Chief Civility Officer for Train Extra. What is that, and how would you describe your role in the company? Yeah, I know. I love that title. I got, I got a little creative with it, I have to say, but So Train Extra is a company that I founded three years ago in November of 2017, and I gave myself that title Chief Civility Officer because my goal with starting the company, you know, I have an employment law background, so I'm a licensed attorney in California. I got licensed in 2003, and since then, I've been dealing with employment law, so I've been focused in on employment law. For a number of years, I was in court representing management. And 
I found that that, you know, being a litigator really wasn't the right fit for me in that I had a passion for training. So I found myself trying to resolve conflict and educate people on what they should or shouldn't have done in the workplace. And so after my son was born, I decided, you know what, I want to coming in as a defense attorney after a lawsuit was filed or a complaint was filed was too late for me to really be able to do anything to help organizations or employees. So Train Extra was founded because I believe that training is a very important component to creating civility in the workplace. And that's what I'm doing now is as a chief civility officer, just working with companies and helping them improve their workplace culture. So you come to your work with a really interesting origin story. And I was wondering if you would take our audience back in time to when you were a teenager growing up in the Chicago area. What happened back then? that has gotten Sajel Thacker to this point today. You know, when they say that of saying, Dan, when they say, you know, everything happens for a reason and right. everything that's happened in my life has brought me here. And it, it's so true. It goes all the way back there. So I was actually conceived in India and I was born in Chicago. So I was, <laughs> came out being in the middle of the American and the Indian culture. I was dealing with a lot of stuff that was going on at home where my parents came to this country for a better future for their children, you know, for same thing with a lot of immigrants that come here. So I had a lot of kind of growing up, a lot of my parents not understanding the American culture, wanting me to abide by the Indian culture and the tradition and the values. And then me also loving the American culture and that being a part of who I am. And so I was always sort of helping to communicate with my parents about and explain to them like why the American culture is this way. And then I was always explaining to people outside of the house why the Indian culture is this way. So all of that started from me, you know, early on. Mm -hmm. And then what made it even you know, why I wanted to get into the legal field really was because I experienced harassment and discrimination myself at a very young age. As I mentioned, my parents came from India. We were the only Indian family living in a suburb of Chicago called Elmwood Park, which was predominantly Italian. And so, you know, I was othered right off the bat. We were different. And so I dealt with a lot of harassment and discrimination growing up at a very young age. And so, you know, my childhood was, it was rough. And it's something that a lot of immigrant children go through in this country, you know, we're automatically othered. So I was always sort of defending myself, standing up for myself and being a person from the outside at a very young age, I was always, how do I see the other people and how do I help explain different perspectives? So I started taking on that role because of the discrimination and harassment I went through as well. That led me to my legal career. I knew I was going to be a lawyer very young. And I talk about this, you know, a lot in some of the podcasts I've done, but my dad would always tell me, say, Joel, you're going to be a lawyer because you just, you ask way too many questions. And most kids ask a lot of questions. I have an eight-year-old, so I know, but apparently I was really, really annoying and, and, and excessive with my asking questions that my dad was around eight or nine. He was like, she's going to be a lawyer. (laughs) So So I did. I mean, I I knew I was going to be an attorney the whole way through. And so what I'd gone through, my social justice, you know, sort of need for advocacy and helping, you know, underrepresented or marginalized groups be heard and not feel like outsiders all led me to law school, which then led me to 
being an employment lawyer. And then that's kind of where things started to shift a little bit for me in my life is that part of my journey is after I actually got licensed and started practicing. A lot of the things that I had thought or believed in my mind before I got to this point were shattered. Let's talk about that. And let me relate it to my own case. You seek work and sometimes you get into that workspace and get clients that you least expect to get. For me, when I worked on behalf of a very large tobacco company, I was on the agency side. And every day I would have to justify to myself that I was making a very good living supporting a company that had a product that could make people sick or kill them, right? Now, you had clients that were accused of some impropriety in a labor situation. So while my example is not apples to apples to yours, it must have created some longing in you to make a change. Would you describe for me what it was like representing clients alleged to have discriminated against others or created a workspace situation with problems? Yeah, no, your example is actually, I mean, I I completely resonate and relate with that situation because it's two-sided, what I went through during that period. One was sort of what you're talking about is me coming to terms with my own belief system, my own biases, my own prejudices, and figuring out like there's no way that I can be an effective attorney and represent people unless I deal with that myself, right? And so I had to go through that part of dealing with my own biases in order for me to be that person. So that was another part of the situation. But then the other side of it too is is now representing people. I expected to see a lot of malicious or intentionally racist or sexist people because of what I'd gone through. And Mm -hmm. so what I found though, and there was a few of those, don't get me wrong. I definitely had my fair share of dealing with those cases, but what I found was that a majority of the cases that I was working on was actually good people, well-intentioned people that were coming to work. They were trying to do the best that they could, both on the, the employer side as well as the employee side. But then they were put into these situations and just didn't have the tools to navigate through those difficult situations, whether it's dealing with a difficult person, a different person, someone who is other, you know, just it could be a lot of different reasons why. But People just didn't have the tools to navigate through these situations at work. And so when people aren't empowered and don't know how to deal with these situations, then they do a couple of different things, right? They want, they say, okay, you know what? I'm just not going to deal with this situation. It'll just go away. And when you were talking about workplace civility, for example, it never goes away. That behavior is going to continue and continue. It's going to fester until it turns into a conflict, right? So. We have to give people skills to deal with those situations. Going back to then working on these cases, right? I often found myself saying, how do I help in this situation? And so it really became clear to me that education and training, because when we all have different lived experiences, we've gone and lived differently, different religions, different upbringings, we're going to bring all of that with us to work. And that doesn't mean you're better than me or I'm, it's just that we're different. And so we need to know how to deal with our differences and how to navigate through these situations. And we expect people to just have this common sort of shared language or shared approach or shared skill set. 
when they come to work and we're just making assumptions. We, we got to stop making these assumptions and really equip people to deal with these situations. The thought that stays in my mind is this. How do you remain at the top of your game as a litigator when you have beliefs that are in conflict with those of your clients? Yeah. And that happens. I mean, you could talk to any attorney, right? They're, they're going to initially your reaction to that person. And this is what I really talk about in my TEDx talk is that it's based on what you've gone through individually in your life and what worldviews you've been exposed to, right? So now when you're dealing with a client that maybe has done something that violates maybe my moral code or my own personal boundaries or what I may believe, I'm going to be challenged. It could be anything. It could be the color of their hair or whatever. I had to really work hard. And this is an easy work, you know, and it, it, even now, like when I have new clients, I have to pick up on my initial reaction that I get. And I'm, I'm aware now when I start doing this work, you can be aware that that's happening. And then you can you, you just follow simple strategies to basically slow down our thinking. That's what we're doing. Right. So mm. when I have a new client and and let's say it's someone that looks like my son. I -hmm. love my son. He's the center of my universe, right? Mm -hmm. And so now I see this person, bias could be positive or negative, right? So I see this person and automatically I have a positive reaction towards them because I love my son. And so I have to then check myself and say, wait a second, make sure that you give this person fair representation and you're giving the same representation to somebody that doesn't remind you of your son, right? So it's just about checking your actions and and making sure that, okay, am I being fair in this situation? Am I judging this individual because of who they are presently and my current beliefs presently, not something because of something I've gone through in my life. And so now that's impacting me and my interaction with this particular person. Once you slow your thinking down and you go through that analysis, now you act and you just make sure that your actions line up with what your current beliefs are. So there's a way to do it. And the scary part here is I went through all of law school without any training on unconscious bias. I mean, talk about a broken you know, system there because how can attorneys that are working with clients that are representing clients that are dealing in the legal system not be fully aware and trained on unconscious bias and how that might impact their decision-making? Same thing with doctors, same things with teachers, same things with everybody. Everybody needs to understand how to deal with it. And so as you can tell, I'm passionate about it and I'm trying to talk, to, talk about this topic as much as I can because it's really important. I want to ask you about how the pandemic has changed your work. But first, I was wondering if you would take us back through what it was like for you to start doing workforce training and some of the reactions and tee-ups that you got from people in the C-suite. Yeah, I mean, the resistance was there a lot more before this last year, I'll tell you that. I think it's significantly changed the landscape. But anybody that talks about leadership will always tell you that getting your buy-in at the top is critical, right? Mm -hmm. For civility, Mm -hmm. for diversity, for inclusion. In order for us to have workplace civility is if people feel psychologically safe at work. That means that they can then have conversations about situations and talk to people that may be making them feel uncomfortable. But they're not gonna do that if they fear some kind of retaliation by the leadership or by the organization. So if 
your leaders are saying one thing, but then they're doing something different. So they're getting up on YouTube and they're making all these beautiful, you know, statements about how much we care about Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the C-suite and there's not a single Black person right. in your board, in your management team. Well, your actions aren't lining up with your words. I mean, that's the first thing I ask these days is what is the diversity like on your board? Let's start there. <laughs> that's right. how high we need to start at the very top. Because if you're saying diversity matters and representation matters, we want to see it. I mean, that's a very important piece, right, to, to really remember. And so then when, when employees are seeing their leaders saying one thing, but doing something else, they're not going to feel safe to have these conversations. They're not going to feel safe to bring their authentic selves to work. And it harms both people. It, it does, it's not just about the employee. It harms the employer because companies are spending millions of dollars on their diversity inclusion efforts and their training and all of these other pieces. But if you're not putting that money towards creating psychological safety, none of that other stuff works. You can get the diversity in the door, but then the next step is, do they feel included? And if there's incivility happening or there's, you know, where they don't feel like they belong there, then it's going to lead to incivility. And then we end up back into a toxic work environment. And then there is the aspect of, is it a cost or is it an investment? And if you have someone in the C-suite who is looking at how much downtime the training is creating by pulling people out of the current work roles to have these discussions, it's not going to work. But if you look at it as an investment, which I hope coming out of the pandemic we will start to do, it begins to work. I think that's the only way you can look at it. The only way. Because people's level of tolerance for incivility has decreased significantly after this last year because of COVID, because of remote working, because of the civil rights movement. There has been so many things that have happened in such a short period of time that people, at least from my personal experience and what I'm seeing professionally and everybody that I'm talking to, is that people are not putting up with BS at work anymore. They're just right. not putting up with it. And they're going to talk about it right on social media, which is, again, um, you know, I think the Me Too movement sort of, you know, laid the foundation for people are going to talk about what's going on and not be afraid to talk about it and fear retaliation. That kind of started that conversation. But I feel like this last year has made it very clear that all eyes are on leaders all eyes are on these organizations. And every day you go on a LinkedIn and you read about somebody filing a lawsuit about complaint. People are going straight to social media with this. So your reputation really depends on this investment and to make sure that you keep happier employees, you retain your talent and you do what you say you're going to do, not just say it, but you actually walk the talk, right? And so this is a difficult and different time for leaders. Yes, and that greenwashed feedback loop no longer works. You can't just say you are for something. I mean, look what's happening in Georgia right now. Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, they are not in front of this the way that they should have been. And how it all unfolded was that the workforce of these companies was enraged. They didn't want to be part of this ethos. That's right. Yeah at all levels of the organization. So, you know, let me just define like sort of what I talk, what I say in civility. I think that's important to what we're talking about here. Right. So 
as an attorney on the cases that I worked on, I saw all kinds of incivility. So I'm talking about a whole range of behaviors, starting from your rude, your unprofessional behaviors, your unwelcome, your dismissive behaviors, going to your abusive conduct, bullying, and then all the way into the illegal behavior category involving harassment, discrimination. So incivility in the way that I talk about it and what I encourage companies to look at it in this broad way is everything in that spectrum from rude all the way to your illegal behaviors. So as an attorney, what I saw was companies were waiting to too late. They were only handling a lot of these situations when it got to the illegal or Mm -hmm. abusive conduct bullying, maybe around there. And then all this other stuff was just going on and and not much being taught to employees about what to do when someone's rude to you, right? A lot of it was don't do this, don't do this. But what about all these other behaviors? They're not even being covered in these trainings, right? Or in your incivility effort or your civility. I call it a civility action plan. Every company should have a civility action plan, right? So, so that now that you know what incivility is, we need to empower the employees to say, hey, when somebody makes you feel anything on this spectrum, here's how you deal with it in a respectful, professional way. And so now we're empowering employees to say certain things have to be reported to HR, yes, but mm-hmm. a lot of the incivility can be handled one-on-one if we create that space for people to have that conversation. So the goal is to disrupt that progression early in the cycle so that we don't want people to be rude to each other. We don't want them to be unprofessional to each other. We don't want microaggressions happening at work. So people need to understand how to deal with them early so it doesn't get to the illegal category. So I'm actually doing the exact opposite of what I believe a lot of organizations are doing is I was coming in at the illegal stage and I'm saying that's too late for me to come in. Mm-hmm. Let's bring me in and, and empower everybody before all of this. Let's be proactive. So we never even have to have the behavior even go on in our company or at least do our best. Because a huge part of that is this microaggression piece, which really is not, uh, again, maybe this path after this past year, a lot more companies are starting to talk about unconscious bias and microaggressions, but those microaggressions contribute to the incivility at work. Mm -hmm. So people need to know what those are and what to do when they see those happening. So not everybody has a child on a college campus, and they may not know what the term microaggression means. So I was wondering if you would offer up an example or two. So microaggressions come from our unconscious bias, right? Which is normal, which is something that you have a brain, you're going to have bias, right? And we've heard a lot of people saying that comments, but it's true. It's just a normal part of who we are. And so when we have these unconscious beliefs or biases about people or situations, then they can result in micro behaviors. Those could be either micro affirmations, which are positive, reactions that you have to your unconscious beliefs, or you can have microaggressions, which are Mm -hmm. the negative reactions to your unconscious beliefs. Again, it's normal. It happens unconsciously. So we're not aware of these behaviors happening. So when you talk specifically, specifically about microaggressions, these are little comments, little insults, little indignities that you might make into, you know, stabs at people that you might take unconsciously unintentionally without even realizing it towards somebody because you have this unconscious belief about that person. So it comes in many different shapes and sizes, right? So it could be comments, 
making a joke about somebody, you know, and, and, and not realizing that it's, it could actually be perceived as being a microaggression. Something like it could be your tone of voice changes when you're talking mm -hmm. to somebody because mm -hmm. you have an unconscious bias about that, right? So, for example, I had a case that I worked on where a supervisor had an unconscious bias about overweight individuals mm. or because of the fact that of his own personal experience where he was morbidly obese as a child mm. and was given six months to live had he not lost this weight. So he worked really hard. And because of his own experience, when he looked at somebody that was overweight, he perceived them unconsciously of being weak. Mm. And in his mind, he would immediately think like, why can't this person work hard like I did? Well, this person isn't you. And there's a lot of people, a lot of different reasons why people are, you know, obese or have a, a weight issues aside from just being weak, right? It could be genetic. I mean, there's a lot of different things, but it could be a tone of voice changes. So he would, in these meetings, whenever he would talk to her, his tone of voice would change when he would get around to her. People noticed it. He would interrupt her during these meetings. He wouldn't make eye contact with her. Sometimes he'd skip over her and not ask her opinion, right? These are all different examples. And this is all happening, by the way, unconsciously. Mm. So until she filed the complaint, you know, this was happening. And when I spoke with him, and, we, and this is the thing about it, is our unconscious bias is unconscious to us, but it comes out mm. in our behaviors and our actions to other people. So these microaggressions, like these interruptions, these tone of voices, these little comments you make, usually these are directed towards somebody of a marginalized or underrepresented group. Right. It could be any of the protected categories under our laws, but it could be mm. any any marginalized group. P unless you belong to that marginalized group, you may not even pick up on it because it just in and of itself just seems like a little. Oh, it's a little jab. Why are you being so sensitive? Why are you being so angry? You know, it was just. And so you might not even pick up on it unless you belong to that marginalized group. But the right. thing is, for you, you get those hurled at you all day long, every day, you know, and it comes in all different shapes and sizes. So you pick up on these all the time. And, and so some people have described it as a, you know, a paper cut. You get one paper cut, but I don't like using these examples. I'm just sharing that because it's not a, it's not a minor injury. You know, lots of research out there that shows that microaggressions can have the same impact on the person as a macroaggression or mm. a racism or, you know, of any prejudice. So, I don't like using calling it a microaggression because it's not it's not a minor thing. It's something that happens repeatedly to this person and it really undermines their self-worth, their self-confidence. It makes them feel like an outsider. So the impact is what we really want to focus in on because it's not about intention. The person didn't know about it. They didn't intend to harm the person, right? So whenever someone starts to get defensive, I always remind them. That's not your role is to get defensive. Your role is to acknowledge the behavior, right? Apologize and do your best to not do that again. It's not about your intention. It's about the fact that this person is being impacted by that behavior. And so it's really our responsibility to just listen and change our behavior, not to justify it, not to defend it. So apropos to nothing, my brother is a retired New York State health official. And talk about someone who had to deal with a lot of microaggressions, especially if he went into a restaurant to do an inspection and found something that was serious. And the owner would, you know, and my brother dealt with this all the time. But at the end of the day, my brother would say to me that his job is to inspect, but also to teach. He always looked to turn the infraction around 
and get that person out of the frame of the argument to say, well, how would you feel if you walked into a restaurant knowing that you could get sick there? And so I think that what you try to do is to be a really good teacher. I think that's a huge component. And also, I think the other part of that, too, is the importance of understanding that it's the bystanders that see these situations. It's really their responsibility to be those educators, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not just, I think that bystander intervention is the solution, you know, of dealing with these um, scenarios. And so, yeah, it's about being the educator, but it's also, you know, understanding that if it's not happening to me, but it's happening to somebody around me, Mm -hmm. what is my role in that situation? What is my responsibility? And how do I react in that situation, right? Because the person that, whether it's a microaggression, whether it's intentional or not, that person is being harmed. And so their main job is to take care of themselves. That's their self-priority right now. If they feel comfortable and feel like they can educate, like me, you know, I've gone through it and now I've done this, I'm doing this for a living. I'm very comfortable talking about my experiences. I've worked through those issues and feel that sharing my story is something that I can do to help people see different perspectives. And so I'm taking this on, but it still takes a toll on me too, right? So I I absolutely get impacted by it. But the harm is really, I want to do this because I want to help other people understand their role. And so that this is why empowering employees, empowering people in our communities to what to do, because I think for a long time, people were told to shut up, you know, put your head down, just do your work and don't say anything and you'll get further. And so, especially if you've been othered, right? If you've already been othered, you're more likely to just stay quiet about it and go along with it because you're already, you know, having to fight just for basic access to education resources and so forth. Now it's even harder, but I think we need to change that narrative and we need to say, no, you know, we all need to be a part of this because that's the only way it works. So 14 months of pandemic remote work and we've been in the Zoom bubble. What has that uncovered about civility and incivility? And what is going to happen now as some of us return to the traditional workplace? Are we going to use this opportunity to include the civility narrative along with the other rules of engagement that include social distancing or whether or not we shake hands anymore? It's going to be very different. Right. And so if there's yeah. anybody still thinking like we're going to go back to being normal, I hope we're, we're not there anymore because mm. it's not there is no going back to anything. Right. But I think it's a very challenging situation because the laws when you're dealing with the covid stuff are changing every day almost right now. Right. And there's a lot of uncertainty going on with that. So there's a lot of different fears that people have about coming back to work and kind of reintegrating back into the workforce. So those need to be dealt with, right? And, mm-hmm. and what happens if somebody doesn't feel safe coming back to work? And so there's so many legal issues that are going on with that. But then you have this you know, remote working situation and that technology piece, do they want to come back? Do they want to work on the computer? Are we going to change our policies to allow for flexible working and mm-hmm. our, you know, so there's all the remote working issues that impact how organizations deal with it. And then there's also just the incivility has increased over the last year. When you have the kind of fear and the biases that have, we've seen 
rearing their ugly heads this last year of the racism, the mm-hmm. sexism, the trans, you know, transgender. I mean, there's so many things mm-hmm. that have impacted us this past year that this creates all kinds of issues that we weren't really dealing with at this level that we need to deal with now. And many employers are not ready for that. And then you add on to that this piece of trauma and what people have gone through over the pandemic, just mentally and their well-being. Lots of people have gone through deaths in their family. There's, you've seen the substance abuse, the alcohol abuse, the suicide rates. I mean, there's a lot of trauma that's gone on even related to the pandemic, but even unrelated to the pandemic that organizations need to remember, you know, and how are you going to support your employees when they're dealing with these situations or they get triggered when they're at work? So what would you say to a C-suite that is bracing for the fact that they are already going to have to rewrite a lot of the pages in their employee handbook to address COVID mitigation? And how do you stress to them that fostering civility also has the same urgency in a positive ROI sense and also as a positive community sense? What I've been out there talking about is, look, make civility a core value at your organization. What does civility mean for your organization, just like you do with your other core values, which are also very important, right? Because look, Plenty of research out there that says the strongest predictor of incivility in your workplace is the degree to which your climate, your organization's climate communicates tolerance of that harassment. So change that narrative. And look, this isn't going to happen overnight. We're not going to have diversity overnight. We're not going to have inclusion overnight. We're not going to have civility overnight. We're not going to have justice overnight. None of that stuff happens overnight. But the bottom line is we need action, right? So we need to know, employees need to understand how they can be empowered to be a part of that civility. So it's not just you saying civility is a priority. It's putting the resources behind it. It's putting the money behind it. So putting your civility action plan together, having a designated person whose sole responsibility is to figure out how do we make civility a core foundation of our culture, right? And so this is a different person. This is not your HR person. Mm -hmm. This is not your diversity person. This is not your inclusion person. You need a chief civility officer at your organization. My job is to work myself out of the job, right? Your job is to have your internal people in there doing that work. So that's, it's got to be now. Because like I said, people's tolerance levels have gone down. And so when you talk about positive ROI, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's retention of talent. It's hard enough getting good talent in the door. And then the last thing you want to do is train this person, you know, get them up to speed. Now you've got good talent in, and now you risk losing them because there is incivility going on in the workplace that you can proactively do something about. Toxic work environments. I mean, plenty of research out there that says toxic work environments are costly. They hit the bottom line. So if you don't care about anything else, worry about your bottom line. We know leaders care about that, right? Yes. Um, I mean, that's, you know, lawsuits. One employment lawsuit because of an employee who feels like they're dealing with illegal behavior is going to run your company $125,000 on average. That's just the cost of the lawsuit. That's not counting 
other things that could be a part of it, right? That's your attorney's fees, $125,000. That's not counting the economic, the mental, the physical harm that causes not just the victim, not just the person that's dealing with that incivility or that discrimination or harassment, but it also, plenty of research that it says it impacts bystanders who are witnesses to this behavior. So you talk about positive ROI, you're talking about less lawsuits, right? Less of those kinds of situations. And then you're talking about brand, your reputation. People are going to see your organization and they're going to type in, you know, the name of your company. They're not going to find all of your employees talking about how they're unhappy there, how there's incivility there, there's lawsuits there. They're going to find your employees talking about, I love where I work. I'm loyal to my company. They're going to build up your brand. And then you talk about diversity and inclusion and all of the benefits of having that which also impact your civility in the organization. So diversity and inclusion, the business case for that has been made years ago. McKinsey and Company has two reports that set out the business reasons for why you want diversity and inclusion, which is a very important part of your civility. There's absolutely no reason why that's not a priority for every single company out there. Sajal Thacker, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been a phenomenal conversation. And I am convinced that civility has to be top of mind in all of our conversations about the future of work. During our pre-interview, I mentioned to you that this would be our 101st episode. And you said that the number 101 had a huge significance to you, but you wouldn't tell me why. So what's the significance? Oh my God. I was so excited when you said that this was going to be the 101st episode. I was like, how do we make this happen? So that number, 101, has been my favorite number since I was 16 years old. Very specific reason for that number and my 16th birthday. And when you said it, it reminded me of that because I haven't, first of all, I've never talked about this on a podcast. So this is oh. my you know, unique first time contribution. But my dad's older brother was like a second father to me. So mm. he was literally the one that took care of me when I was a baby. Like he changed my diapers. He fed me. My mm. dad my dad and mom were working, right? Mm -hmm. So they were out making money. So he basically raised me and he passed away, unfortunately, on my 16th birthday. And there were circumstances that happened around it, but where I ended up being very upset at him because I wasn't given an opportunity to say goodbye to him. Well, a week after he passed away, we had the funeral. And the day after the funeral, I had a dream in my, I was, apparently I, I was sleepwalking and this was in the middle of, you know, winter in Chicago. And apparently my dad like heard me sleepwalking outside and he heard, cause we have these wooden creaky floors and he followed me outside and he found me laying on the snow, like in my pajamas. I was dreaming. And I remember this very vividly that my uncle came to me in my dream and basically like, was like saying that I was, that he had to, he couldn't leave without saying goodbye to me. He handed me a note. And on that note, the numbers 101 were written on that note. Oh, wow. And he basically was saying, look, you're not ever going to be alone. I'm going to be your like guardian angel. I'm always going to be with you. So one being me, and the zero represented just the world. And then the other one was him being on the other side of the world. And oh. so that story is like, so since then, 101 has been my That's favorite good. number. Before we depart, I was wondering if you would point our listeners to your social media. Yes. So the only social media that I'm really active on is LinkedIn. Please follow me on LinkedIn. That would be the best place to keep. And, and I'm a huge believer in sharing resources. Like, so if I see something dealing with the topic of civility, diversity, or inclusion, that is going to help your organization, 
I actively seek those resources out because there's so much nonsense out there. So I'm always mm -hmm. posting things that are going to be helpful for your organization and your employees. So, and then mm -hmm. the only other place to kind of keep up with what I'm doing would be my website. And we will post them all. Thank you so much. Links to Sajel Thacker's social media are provided in the show notes for this episode at dansmolin.com. Please join us again for more inspiring stories from people who are real-time reimagining the work that we do and hope to do. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts or listen to current and past episodes on our website at dansmolin.com. And please take a moment to positively rate and comment wherever you listen to this podcast, because that helps us to connect with new listeners. I'm Dan Smolin, and this is the Dan Smolin Podcast. Thank you for joining us on an amazing journey to the future of work doing meaningful work. And do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Let's connect again next week. 